0: Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, Episode 28. Sheremy returned to the St. Paul's headquarters and sought out the Pearlies. They sat in their marquee taking tea and wormwood biscuits and greeted him with smiles and cries of, Mon! Sheremy sat beside them. Affecting a serious pose, he said, Your Majesties, there's a lot we need to discuss. Tell me, if you could declare the East End an independent country, ruled by yourselves, would you do it? The Pearly King shrugged and replied, Maybe, but that never going to happen. But what if it could? The Pearly Queen chuckled. "'Dat Prime Minister never going to listen to us. "'We capture his stupid number ten by force. "'Den take what we want in.' "'To this, Jeremy replied, "'But you'll lose hundreds, if not thousands, of your people. "'Cockney blood will make the Thames run red. "'Do you want that?' "'This made her think. "'She replied, "'If it mean we win, dat got to be done.' Your Majesty, there is another way. I'm a man of the Suicide Club, and I have the ear of many nobles. I could perhaps negotiate a settlement? A settlement? They never gonna settle with the likes of us, man. They might. "'Sheremy insisted. "'I've been right so far. "'You must believe me. "'The government soldiers are drilled for war. "'They've fought wars. "'What if the Cockney uprising fails "'because their military expertise is too good? "'We got damn superior numbers.' "'Sheremy stood up. "'We'll see, sir. "'I'll count them myself.' "'The Pearly King also stood up. "'I not like in this. "'You trying to force us into a corner?' "'No, sir, I'm trying to save Cockney lives. "'Is that so terrible a wish?' "'The Pearly King hesitated. "'Then he said, "'Right, you count them. and come back quick now, you hear?' "'Sherami bowed, then departed the Marquis. "'He found that he was trembling. "'This was not going to be easy.' Heading west, he returned to his house in Gough Square, for which, for want of something to do, he tidied. He then returned to St Paul's to give his report. Your Majesties, he began, the forces of the government number 9,500, of which 4,500 are experienced troops from the Amsterdam Campaign. Not even a concerted push by the Cockneys can overcome them, though your numbers slightly outweigh theirs. So many soldiers, the pearly king muttered. Dis no good. I gotta consider. Options, you know. Jeremy nodded, bowed, and retreated. In his little tent he slept, until the shout awoke him. Mr. Pantomile, meet! Pearly King, demand in your presence. Quickly now. Jeremy dressed and hurried over to the Marquis, but at once sensed a new chill in the air. Are you well, Your Majesty? he asked. Your number's not much in ours, the Pearly King said. He frowned. I think you cheating. I think you overestimate the government forces to bring us down. Sir, I'd never do that. Quiet, man. You're in the presence of the king. Yes, your majesty. We're gonna push on. Capture Whitehall. Them ministers are idiots. I want you on my side. Help me, like. Though he knew this could not be, Asherami said, Yes, your majesty. Good. I trust you. But if you betray me, I hang you. Jeremy bowed and departed. For a while, he sat dejected inside his tent. Then he departed for Bedwood's house, knowing that his time with the Cockney uprising was over, at least for the moment. But there might yet be time to halt the war. He discussed the crisis with Juinfier in her rooms. We've got to convince Lord Gorge to draw up a plan for the declaration of an independent East End, he said. "'Only then will the Purleys believe that the government is serious. "'I think the Purleys want to believe me, but they just can't.' "'It was a courageous plan, Jeremy.' Was? I'm not done yet,' she nodded, awaiting more. "'He continued, "'I'll come with you to Downing Street in the morning. "'I don't want to, but we've got to use every tactic we can "'to make Lord Gorge do what we want. "'I know.' I know, Joennefer, it's not true to the spirit of suffering, but I fear for London and the lives of thousands. We must demand a document outlining a declaration of independence. If I can take that to the Purleys, then perhaps London town will be spared destruction. She nodded. I admire you, Jeremy, for your devotion to humanitarian causes. He smiled. "'Praise from the praiseworthy was valuable indeed.' "'He took her hand and kissed it. "'You honour me, Schwenfeir.' "'He glanced up at her face as his lips touched her hand. "'Then suddenly he had a mental image of Mrs. kissing his own hand. "'He sat back, disconcerted. "'Are you all right, Jeremy?' "'He nodded. "'He realised he was below her station. "'And yet was he?' Could Srinifier Bedwards love any man other than one of her exalted stature? He glanced away. He didn't know. A jumble of messy, painful feelings rose inside him, and once again he felt his old compunction to hide them. He stood up, knocking back his chair, which fell with a clatter. I've got to run, he said. See you tomorrow morning. He hurried away. Alarmed to find there were tears in his eyes. Next morning, dawned dark and rainy. Dressed in Fabergé coats, hats and tough old boots, they forced a way through slick and slippery hair to Fleet Street, where Franklin grazed the aerial flimflam. An hour later, they were scraping the soles of their boots on the number 10 scraper, then walking inside. The aroma of tea and almond biscuits greeted them. Lord Gorge recognised Sheremy at once. Pantomile, isn't it? What? Chap who licked the azure temple of... Uh, well, you know what I mean. Jeremy Pantomile at the service of the government, Prime Minister. Yes, yes, quite. What? So, you're with to today? I'm supporting her. Schwinifere is in charge. Lord Gorge looked uncomfortable. Strange kettle of fish, what, for a lady? Not really. History pushes on, and Schwennefer is the key to all this. Yes, the good lady, but I'm not sure now. My cabinet... Schwennefer is at least... I am here, gentlemen, Schwennefer said, with some acidity. Jeremy nodded. The Prime Minister's ear is at your beck. Without preamble, Schwennefer said... "'Lord Gorge, I want today a draft declaration of independence for the East End.' She withdrew a parchment from her blouson, which Jeremy was amazed to see contained a map of the eastern reaches of London, a map she must have drawn herself in secret. She continued, "'This is my suggestion for where to put the borders.' You can see I've included Whitechapel, Stepney, Wapping Poplar, Limehouse and Bow within those borders. The new country would therefore have a good length of riverbank to use for imports and exports, over which it would, of course, exercise total control. The East End is to be ruled as a constitutional monarchy, but, unlike ours, there would be a written constitution. The eldest son or daughter would succeed to the jelly-deal throne, however, a state of affairs we would insist upon in our negotiations should the pearly king and queen prefer inheritance through the male line only. Border controls would be entirely the affair of the EastEnders, as would taxation. Cockney would be the official language. Jeremy took a deep breath. Lord Gorge took a deep breath. Schwinnefer sipped her tea, then continued. Each country would have an embassy in the other, with ours, I venture to suggest, occupying the cock's egg building in Bow. Theirs could be in Mayfair. An ambassador would look after the vital interests of each country, and the usual diplomatic mauls would be followed. The creation of a standing army would be the sole right of the East End and all external influence over the creation and control of that army would be forbidden. Men and women of any background and race could join that army. The East End would have a parliament and an elected government, which would be voted in on a party basis, as is ours, every five years or less, depending on circumstances, a free speech, a free association, and the right to a free Joanna. "'Must all be in the written constitution, "'a state of affairs we would again have to insist upon in our negotiations?' "'Schwinevere paused, took another sip of her tea. "'I think that's everything, Prime Minister.' "'Lord Gorge sat, slack-jawed, staring at her, silence in the room. "'Then he said, "'My dear lady,' You simply can't be serious, what? I am perfectly serious. You must realise that this is a turning point in British history. A turning point? Over my dead body, what? That's what we're trying to avoid, Schwennefer pointed out. Lord Gord stood up and gestured at the door. Out, both of you. This is mad foolery of the worst kind, what? You thought I would agree to this? For the first time, Xwenefier's aura of confidence seemed wan. She glanced at Jeremy, then turned to Lord Gorge and said, You would not want me to tell the Pankhurst's that." Jeremy winced. And now, Lord Gorge thundered, you threaten me? Out, before I call for the basher-at-arms. Jeremy took Xwenefier by the hand and led her out hurrying into Downing Street with her at his side, whereupon the door to number 10 slammed shut. ''Where did I go wrong?'' she asked, turning to face him. ''You didn't,'' he replied. ''He's too dyed in the wool to accept that London's changing. ''Unless we can stop it, there'll be war now between rich and poor.'' ''But, Jeremy, thousands will be killed and London ruined.'' I know, my dear, I know. And just at this moment, I can't think of anything we can do to stop that happening. (laughs) Velvine landed the eagle on the roof of the Gordon Square flat and scrambled down, calling out as he did. Sylvia, Rocha, I have the pamphlet. Everybody sat in the common room, Sylvia standing up when he entered. I found Marx in the British Library and persuaded him to write us a pamphlet, he continued. He said I was an excellent ally to the working class, and he wished me luck. Sylvia, unimpressed, snatched the pamphlet from him. I don't believe a word of it, she said. What's it about? Well, it is a call to action for the working class to support the Cockney Uprising. This isn't by Marx... It could have been written by anybody. He hasn't even signed it. Velvine frowned, annoyed by her lack of faith. Why would he sign a pamphlet, eh? he replied. But it is by him, and we can use it as we wish. Sylvia flung the pamphlet back at him. It's worth nothing, she said. Velvine gathered the papers from the floor. Now angered, he confronted Sylvia. Why do you have to demean everything I do for this group? Because, Velvine Orchardtide, you're a spy, an aristocratic spy sent here to ruin us. Velvine said nothing for a moment. It is true that I'm an Orchardtide, he admitted with a shrug, but I am banished from the family and will never again be one of them. I have put all my energies into the Marxist-Leninist workers' movement of London. You must see that by now. You lie. That isn't by Marx. You wrote it. Velvine did not know what to say. He had no proof, after all. You're trying to take over my group, aren't you? said Sylvia. No, I am not he retorted. I am not interested in taking over the group. Why, do you constantly accuse me of that, eh? Sylvia walked out to face him. Because you don't like a woman leading the group, because you don't approve of Diamonian Persevalia being here, because you, Mr. Aristocrat, don't like women. You think they're worthless and should be at home looking after the babies and making soft furnishings. This... "'Is nonsense. Are you married?' "'No. But have you ever been married?' "'No, I have not,' Velvine said. "'But what has it got to do with me struggling day after day "'for the Marxist-Leninist workers' movement of London, eh?' Sylvia turned to address her colleagues. "'I think my point has been made,' she declared. "'But then Velvine, seeing the pained look on Persevalia's face, said—' Am I right in thinking, you proofread Engels, the condition of the working classes in England, Percivalia? She nodded. Many hours ago, she said. And have you ever seen the handwriting of Karl Marx? On quite a few occasions. Then, Volvin said, trying his best to keep the triumphalism from his voice, you can tell me who wrote this. He handed her the pamphlet, which she read a few lines of. Spy marks, she said, handing it to Sylvia. Sylvia seemed half astonished, half infuriated. At length, she managed to say, then I suppose we'll have to have a few hundred copies printed up. Make that a few thousand, Percivalia said. Are we aiming for the heavens or muddy earth? A thousand, then, Sylvia muttered. "'Velveen nodded. "'Thank you, Percivalia. "'We're indebted to your intellect and to your prowess in this group.' "'I'm still leader,' Sophia insisted. "'Doubtless you are,' Velveen replied. "'I suspect I shall always be the outsider. "'But you cannot now doubt my motives, eh? "'Here we have a Marx original which we could use to support the Cockney uprising. "'And there is something else I want to suggest.' Oh, really?' "'Sylvia said. "'Velvine ignored her sarcasm. "'We need foot soldiers. "'As many as possible, young, old and middling. "'There is a factory on Pentonville Road "'where an innocent boy was incarcerated, "'along with hundreds of others, "'and I want them released so that they may serve the cause. "'Who is with me for the raid, eh?' "'At once Rosher raised his hand. "'We need as many freed workers as possible,' he said. "'I know the place you mean, Velvine, "'the tall black building with high walls and small windows, "'wotting brown doors and a workmaster with a sallow face.' "'That is the place,' Velvine said. "'Those children may have nowhere to go, "'but the Cockney uprising will have need of them. "'And then we shall release other workers, "'perhaps even the natives of Grafton Place, "'though they rejected us last time.' "'How will you release all these workers?' Velveen smiled. Well, this is the cunning part, he said. During my war service in the southwest of outer London, I learnt the basics of making cordite, which uses petroleum compound, nitroglycerin, and nitrocellulose, all substances that may easily be stolen. We shall make cordite into strings and use it to explode all the doors of any given factory. "'Then we shall call the workers to arms "'and lead them south to old Father Thames and the uprising.' "'A good plan,' Sylvia said. "'But I'm making one alteration.' "'What would that be, eh?' Velvine asked. "'I'm coming with you, not Rosha. "'You need to see what a woman can do. "'I already know what a woman can do. "'I have seen you in action.' "'And then you'll see me in action again,' Sylvia replied.' And so the plan was set. Velvine and Sylvia would work as a pair to blow open the Pentonville Road factory, at which point Diamoni would enter, using her powers of oratory to persuade everyone to join the uprising. Persevalia and Rocher would stay concealed nearby, carrying five hundred pamphlets each. With the cordite manufactured, they set out one morning to Pentonville Road. Velveen felt a number of contradictory emotions pass through him as he viewed the place. Anger that Tycho had been captured, fear of what might happen if the plan failed, excitement that the Marxist-Leninist workers' movement of London was at last rallying support to the cause. Sylvia suggested a route and the method of laying the cordite that offered the least chance of them being noticed and caught. It was a good plan, And Velvine, aware of her simmering resentment, agreed to it without issue. They set to work. The morning was quiet, the hair on Pentonville Road thick, and nobody challenged or even noticed them. With the cordite leads laid, all that remained was to link them up and set the charge. Sylphia did this. The cordite exploded, blowing four doors off their hinges. But then... In direct opposition to the plan, she ran into the factory building. Velvine, not knowing what she was doing, followed, waving Diamone on. Inside the building all was chaos. Two workmasters, including the sallow-faced man who captured Tycho, screamed at the children, cracking whips against the innocent's flesh. Ah! Sophia raised one arm into the air. Velvine saw that she carried a pistol. She fired. At once, silence fell across the place. She said, Boys, girls, men and women, we've come to rescue you from tyranny. To the south, an uprising has begun that will topple both government and aristocracy. Wait, wait, the sallow-faced man interrupted, cracking his whip against the floor. Who the bling nail are you to smash our house? You will be quiet and listen. Sylvia retorted. You've caused quite enough damage to these workers? The man cracked his whip once more. I'll bleed and have you, I will. Sylvia lowered her pistol and fired twice, hitting the man in the chest. He fell motionless. Then she turned the pistol on the other man and killed him too. Felvine leaped forward and grabbed her arm, but she was strong and lithe and managed to release herself from his grip. Do not kill anybody else, Velvine cried. There is no need for murder. By now, hundreds of children and workers, shocked beyond measure, began running, streaming out of the factory, many of them screaming in panic. Stop! Stop! Diamoni yelled. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. A few of them stopped, but the majority fled. Velveen rounded on Sylvia and shouted, You fool! We've lost hundreds of soldiers now. What do you think you were doing shooting men like that? Sylvia turned and pointed the gun at him. Velveen raised his hands. To Diamoni, she said, Take the workers outside and tell them what next to do. A few minutes later, only Sylvia and Velveen remained inside the factory. Velvine said, "'You're no better than Pertrand, "'shooting your way through your life "'with no regard to anybody. "'I don't care what you think. "'I've never trusted you. "'Not from the moment poor Pertrand brought you to our place. "'Well, what are you going to do with me, eh? "'Kill me, because I'm an inconvenience?' "'Sylvia shook her head. "'I'm going to give you two options. "'Stay in the Marxist-Leninist workers' movement "'of London and be shot. "'Here, now.' or leave with your life and never come back. Velvine lowered his hands. That, he said, is Hobson's choice. He bowed, then added, farewell oh good luck. Sylvia scowled, gesturing to the nearest door with her pistol. Velvine hurried away. Outside he came across Diamony, orating to a hundred or so confused, scared workers. Is Tycho here? he asked her she shrugged. To the workers he cried out, Is Tycho Matchmaker here? A lone voice shouted, He's gone off, Gav, down Grayson Road. Scared he was. If you run, you'll catch him. Velvine sighed. Good luck, Diamond here, he said. Eustacia struggled to Qbridge Road before collapsing into a lock of brown hair, sobbing. The experience of arguing with Cornucop of dealing with the hideous bane, and with escaping from the guard had exhausted her. She curled up, wept, then sat up and wondered what to do. She did not feel like returning home, but where else to go? Then she remembered where she was. Kew, southwest of the city, with Southall, the spiritual home of the Hindu in London, hardly more than three miles away. Yes, that was a different kind of home, where nobody would find her, where she could fit in. She wept again, appalled that circumstances had brought her to a position of rejecting decades spent happy and contented, for the most part, in Hampstead society. But what she felt, she felt strongly. Cornucop had treated her like an inferior, and she was not. She was his equal. Then, thinking of him, she shuddered. The Shiva device that she guessed to be annihilator, was in the hands of buffoons and stiff-necked old men who would use it against the unarmed masses. What could she do? She stood up. There was no point in weeping here. It might attract scavengers. Besides, she was done crying. Her practical nature took over, and she considered the best way of making a path through the hairy streets. For a while, she pushed on alone, struggling against thick clumps of matted black hair that choked Brentford High Street before turning off into Boston Manor Road. But there she saw a remarkable sight. Ingenious locals were moving hither and thither on skis set with small wobbling balloons. Stopping a young man, she asked, How do you travel so easily on those? The balloons are full of shampoo, he replied, which lubricates the hair and the bottom of the ski. "'It's harder work than walking, but it gets you about at a decent speed across the hair.' "'Could I buy a pair?' "'He pointed to a shop just about to close for the evening. "'Mrs. Goodman Dottier's ice and the related emporium,' he said. "'Hurry!' "'Estatia entered the shop, found coins in her handbag, "'and purchased a pair of beginner skis, which she strapped on in the street outside.' Filling the balloons with echinacea and chamomile shampoo, then attaching them to the application nozzles on the skis. Thus equipped, standing upright, she was away, skiing in fine form across the hair. Skiing, a journey that might have taken four or five hours, took just one. As the sun dipped below the horizon and rain clouds drew in from the west, she entered South Old Broadway and saw the Trimurti temple at its western end where it met the Grand Union Canal she stopped relaxed she took off the skis and on a whim gave them to a young woman struggling with a heavy bag and she felt at home but with no actual relations here all her kin were in mumbai the only place she would find succor was the trimurti temple So, to that vast, multi-leveled building, she walked. Across the exterior of the temple, she saw 10,000 statues, gold leaf-covered the parapets and stanchions, cows chewed the cud outside, and elephants pulled logs from the wood behind the temple. While on a hillock sat a wizened old guru, who smiled at her as she passed. Then she stood at the temple doors, A dozen people rushed past her on their own business Unaware, it seemed, of her presence But then a voice said Welcome, daughter of Hindu You've seen Lord Shiva recently She jumped and turned around to see a young black-haired Hindu woman Her ears and nose almost invisible behind gold rings Her sari crimson and silver Her sandals supple, badger skin stitched with gold wire Who are you? She asked the woman. How do you know me? I am Vandana Patwadhan, and I do not know you. But I recognize the mark of Lord Shiva upon your forehead. There isn't a mark, Estesia said. There is in the sight of those who can see, Vandana replied. Come into the temple. I sense you need food, water, and rest. Vandana led her into a cool chamber to the side of the entrance hall in which stood ewers of water, oat biscuits and Punjabi puri. They sat on cushions made in the shape of elephants. Vandana played with a floppy ear, she said. I am a devotee of Lord Shiva, inducted into the aura mysteries. I saw you walking up the broadway and hoped you would approach the temple. You have seen Lord Shiva recently, have you not? Stasia began to fret. Had the terrible weapon of Kew Gardens imprinted something upon her skin? What can you see on my forehead? she asked. A sign that tells me Lord Shiva himself has looked upon you. I see barbed lines, plus and minus signs, and more that I do not recognize. Plus and minus signs? The symbolism of Rutherford, Rontgen and the rest. She felt her skin turn cold. She shivered. I fear the worst, she said. I had an argument with my husband and ran away. What was the argument about? Eustacia explained the situation, then said, I do love him, I really do, but he doesn't understand the importance of ordinary people. He looks down on them. But that's only because he's been trained to. He is a good man, but he has learned some bad lessons. Oh, I do miss him. Do you think I'll ever see him again? No doubt, Vandana replied. But I can tell you something that perhaps you do not yet know. You tell me that the chamber holding the Shiva device was activated by spoken passwords? Yes. The device itself will be activated using the same method. Estacia nodded. That's why the government man called down Saraman from the Royal Institute. Vandana smiled. Saraman, who is a genius, will never speak the password. Why not? It is imprinted upon your forehead and until it comes off it can never be spoken, apart from by you, should you wish it. Then the device has temporarily neutralized itself. Perhaps it sensed danger. Perhaps it knows of the chaotic situation in London town and does not want to be part of it. But that means the government will be looking for me, Vandana nodded. They will when they realize Saraman has failed. With Gandhi dead and his followers scattered to the four winds, they will certainly be looking for you. You are in great danger. Then you must hide me. I will. Lord Shiva's wife Parvati can protect. Eustacia felt tears fall from her eyes. She wanted no part of the events in which she had become embroiled. Moreover, she wanted cornucope out of them too. What had happened to the wager? to the discovery of love. Everything had been reduced to politics and violence. She felt disgusted. Your husband loves you, Vandana said, but many obstacles in his mind block him. I know, but I've got a secret at home, a syringe of Hindu germs. I can reveal the true man if I want to. Vandana stood up and led astacia out of the side chamber into the main temple. Let us go and worship, she said. But Eustatia halted, staring at a figure across the way. What is it? Vandana asked. Istasia hid behind a column, but it was too late. The wizened old man, not ten yards away, had seen her. That man, she replied, is Misanthrop Mahavishnu. Vandana glanced across, then returned her gaze to Eustatia. I know him, she said. He's an evil doctor. Behold to the violent cult of Gandhi. He presented himself as a decent man. He arrived here recently. Estacia shook her head. He is bad, and he saw me. If he noticed the mark upon my forehead. For the first time, Vandana looked worried. Do you have a headscarf in your handbag? Estacia nodded. Wear it. <laughs> You've been wrapping your ears around Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Narrated by R.D. Watson